0: Hello and welcome back to the History of Colonization podcast. My name is Fidelity and this is episode 15 of the podcast. Today we'll cover the second part of the Aztec Spanish War. Please listen to part 1 of the Aztec Spanish War if you haven't. We ended off last episode with the Spanish continuing on their road to Tenochtitlan in 1519, a week after the massacre at Cholula. Hernan Cortes described the journey in his second letter. Writing that the indigenous lots were very submissive to the newly arrived Spanish, which provided a reason that would later help legitimize the eventual conquest. Yet at the same time, he was very wary of spies and ambushes planted by the indigenous lots, and so he also portrayed them as untrustworthy and suspicious, a theme that would continue not just in his own letters but subsequent Spanish sources to some extent too. The ruler of Tenochtitlan, Moctezuma, had been receiving information about the Spanish throughout their journey, from the very moment of their landing onwards. Moctezuma had hoped that they would turn back midway on their path to Tenochtitlan, and Moctezuma sent messengers who offered tribute such as gold, silver, and slaves, on the condition that the Spanish did not enter his lands. Of course, the Spanish didn't heed this. They didn't want scraps of gold. They wanted to get to the place where all this gold came from. Now, there was a culture gap between the Spanish and the Mexica. It was part of the Mesoamerican culture to offer tribute to a foreign power that threatened to invade. And this worked in Mesoamerica. Upon offering tribute, the state that was being threatened would be left alone as a vassal state. But it was different from how the Spanish understood the significance of tributes. Tributes did not satisfy the conquistadors, who would stop at nothing for complete dominance over the source of gold. And so Cortes met Moctezuma on the 8th of November, 1519, along the Iztapalapa Causeway, a 13km-long path that gave the Spanish a good glimpse of Tenochtitlan. Imagine Tenochtitlan when the Spanish arrived in 1519. It was nothing like what they had seen in Europe. In Cortes's letters, he compared it to Seville and Cordova, while in Europe it was called quote, Great Venice. But these cities paled in comparison to Tenochtitlan in skill, in architecture, and in population. The capital of the Triple Alliance was located on a grand floating island city on a lake, framed by mountains on its sides. Tenochtitlan shared this island in the middle of Lake Texcoco with Tlatelolco, another city state up north. There were multiple causeways from the city-states, from the mainland to the island, and these causeways could be opened or closed for passing boats and to allow or restrict visitors to the city. What was remarkable about the city, though, were not the multiple canals or the sheer amount of city dwellers, it was the city of all cities. Just to give you an idea of how grand the city was, Cortés describes a snapshot of the markets in his second letter to the king of Spain. He wrote that there were more than 60,000 people engaged in buying and selling gold, silver, different metals, precious stones, bones, feathers, bricks, timber, varieties of birds, meats, herbs, vegetables, fruits, paint, cloth. Well, you get the idea. The list went on and on. He wrote, and I quote, Everything that can be found throughout the whole country is sold in the markets, comprising articles so numerous. That their names are not retained in my memory or are unknown to me, and I shall not attempt to enumerate them. Every kind of merchandise is sold in a particular street or quarter assigned to it exclusively. Unquote. The grandeur was on an unbelievable scale, not just for Cortes, but also for Bernard Diaz, who recorded seeing palaces, rose gardens, orchards, and zoos with animals brought from all over the empire. That quote, some of our soldiers even asked if what we saw was not a dream. We saw things we never heard of, nor even dreamed of, Now back to the meeting on the cosway. It was quite the grand affair, with crowds turning out to watch the Spanish pass by. Moctezuma brought along 200 lords to greet Cortes and his entourage of both conquistadors and indigenous allies, and they exchanged gifts of pearls and gold. Moctezuma then invited the Spanish as visitors to the city, giving them the best food, accommodation and gifts. Cortes would later claim that Moctezuma had surrendered his empire upon their meeting, and Cortes then subsequently placed Moctezuma under house arrest. But this wasn't true at all. Moctezuma continued governing his empire for months before being put under house arrest. At this point, I have to address something that's often been repeated, that Moctezuma and the Mexica saw Cortes and his men as gods. The story goes that the serpent god, Quetzalcoatl, had gone away to the east for a long, long time. And he promised to return eventually. There were supposedly omens indicating the return of Quetzalcoatl before the arrival of the Spanish, and when Cortes arrived, Moctezuma saw him as the reincarnation of Quetzalcoatl and was thus deferential to him from the very start. In other words, it's a colonial narrative you might have heard before. The colonizers encounter indigenous people who are supposedly less civilized and naive and who then accept the Europeans as gods and so allow themselves to be colonised. But this was a myth. In Cortes's letters, which is the only surviving European account from the war, Cortés never said that he was seen as a god. This myth was perpetuated by the Spanish years after the war, which included Spanish chroniclers and friars, and it can be found in the Florentine Codex too. This myth was intended to justify colonisation, but this can also be attributed to a translation error. The Aztecs referred to the Spanish as Teotl, and it was translated as gods by some Spanish writers, but Teotl had multiple meanings. It could mean a human sacrifice that represented the gods or a spiritual power. There was also the problem of naming the Spanish. Throughout the Triple Alliance and beyond, people were referred to by the locations they came from. For example, the Tlaxcalteca came from Tlaxcala. It was possible that the Aztecs were uncertain of what to call these new foreigners, and hence understood them to be representatives of their own gods and so named them as such. Regardless, rejecting this myth is important, of course, in understanding that the Aztecs were not as naive and gullible as the Spanish made them out to be. They were not bound to superstition or incapable of political strategy. But why would Moctezuma invite the Spanish in instead of keeping them out? Historians have theorised that Moctezuma was worried that Cortes would team up with the enemies of the Triple Lions. So Moctezuma would rather have had Cortes under his roof, where he could choose to become a vessel of the Spanish and avoid bloodshed, as was the custom in Mesoamerica. Now let's zoom out from Tenochtitlan. Remember how this all started when Cortes was supposed to be leading an expedition sent out by Governor Diego Velazquez? I mentioned last episode. Cortes was not allowed to lead invasions without Velazquez's permission. Well, Cortes was clearly not obeying Velazquez's instructions, and he was definitely not deferring to his authority. Velazquez requested Spain to send help with the complaint that Cortes had been extremely violent to the indigenous people living on the Maya coast. But the Spanish court was reluctant to send help, especially since Cortes was sending back gold and other valuable treasures. They attempted to mediate between both sides, but by then Velazquez had decided to send his own expedition to arrest Cortes on charges of treason. But Velazquez was occupied with an epidemic, most likely smallpox, in Cuba. The epidemic had started in the Caribbean in October 1519, with the source of the outbreak traced back to the Spanish port town that the conquistadors came from. It was a sign of things to come in Mesoamerica. Velázquez sent Panfilo de Narváez, his second in command, instead. Narváez led more than a thousand men, which was twice the number of men that Cortés had brought in his own expedition. Narváez and his men arrived in late April 1520, tracing the route that Cortés took up to Sempoala and kept there. They sent delegations to Cortés in Tenochtitlán, but there was no hope of avoiding conflict. Cortés was so close to making a name for himself, and concurring Tenochtitlan. And his ambition knew no bounds by the time Narvaez arrived. Moctezuma found out about the arrival of Narvaez and made preparations to go to war. But it was unclear if he would take the side of Cortes or Narvaez. Cortes made the first move. He took Moctezuma by surprise, putting him in irons for 80 days in the Spanish living quarters, which Moctezuma had so generously offered them at the beginning. He wanted to prove To Narvaez's men that he had control over the city and hopefully convinced them to join him. He then left Tenochtitlan under the command of Pedro de Alvarado to guard Moctezuma and manage the rest of the population, while Cortés and his army went to deal with Narvaez and his men. With the help of an indigenous army and defectors from Narvaez's side, Cortés's soldiers swiftly defeated Narvaez. And in the process, Cortes gained a larger group of soldiers. And by the end of it all, Cortes had 1300 men under his command. Back in Tenochtitlan, it was the festival month of Toxcatl when the Mexica celebrated the gods Tezcatlipoca and Huitzilopochtli at the end of the dry season. During this festival, the key event was the sacrifice of a youth who had been treated as the incarnation of Tezcatlipoca for the past year. There were tensions running high in this year's festival though, between the Mexica and the Spanish, and three weeks prior to the festival, the Mexica started refusing to deliver food to the conquistadors. This was what happened in the Great Temple, at the centre of Tenochtitlan, during the festival. Quote, The festivity was being observed and there was dancing and singing, with voices raised in song. The singing was like the noise of waves breaking against the rocks. When the moment had come for the Spaniards to do their killing, they came out equipped for battle. They came and closed off each of the places where people went in and out of the courtyard, and when they had closed these exits, they stationed themselves in each and no one could come out anymore. When this had been done, they went into the temple courtyard to kill the people. Those whose assignment it was to do the killing just went on foot, each with his metal sword and leather shield. Then they surrounded those who were dancing. They struck a drummer's arms, both of his hands were severed. Then they struck his neck, his head landed far away. Then they stabbed everyone with iron lances and struck them with iron swords. They struck some in the belly, and then their entrails came spilling out. Those who tried to escape could go nowhere. When anyone tried to go out, at the entryways, they struck and stabbed him. Unquote. Alvarado and his men had massacred the unarmed festival-goers. Years later, the historian Francisco Lopez de Gomara would claim that this was because Alvarado wanted to stop the human sacrifices that were happening. But this claim doesn't make much sense, considering how sacrifices were already taking place way before the festival. The commonly accepted narrative is that Alvarado had overheard rumours that a Mexica would sacrifice the Spanish, and so he unleashed his men on the city in his paranoia. There is also the possibility that having witnessed the massacre at Cholula just a year before, and its resulting success in taming the population, Alvarado attempted to replicate that in Tenochtitlan. Other historians have also theorised that it was Cortes who called for the massacre, Because he was afraid that Moctezuma would form an alliance with Narvaez, and he wanted to get rid of the elite eagle and jaguar knights in the festivities at the same time. But this was nothing like Cholula. The blowback was swift and brutal. The Mexica were mad and swore to take revenge. They tried to attack the Spanish and their allies, but upon failing to penetrate the walls, they took a step back and prepared for battle. Cortés, on his part, noted an eerie silence on his way back from defeating Narvaez, especially when he entered Tenochtitlan. The battle started along the Tacuba Causeway, leading to Tenochtitlan. This was led by Moctezuma's younger half-brother, Quintlahuac, who represented the angry young men in the city who were no longer supporting Moctezuma. They were in somewhat of an impasse, though. The Spanish couldn't escape their improvised fortress, but the Mexica warriors were unable to break through either. Moctezuma spoke to his people from a rooftop, urging them to give up, saying, quote, We are not your match. Let everyone be dissuaded. Unquote. Moctezuma has been depicted as a coward for encouraging his people to surrender, but he understood that there would be more Spanish conquistadors and their allies sent to Tenochtitlan, and he wanted to prevent the further loss of life. Moctezuma died from a stone thrown at him supposedly from one of the Mexica below the rooftop during the chaos of the battle. But the circumstances around his death are pretty murky, and we don't know for sure if his death was truly an accident, the anger of his own people, or the Spanish themselves, who might have seen him as an unnecessary risk with the escalating battle. What we know though, is that the Spanish captains did kill the rest of the royal family, as well as the Tlatuanes, the rulers, of all the other city-states in the Triple Alliance And the royal governor of Tlatelolco. Yet, these deaths only escalated the battle. The Mexica destroyed all the causeways to Tenochtitlan, and the only way out was by going through the surrounding waters of Lake Texcoco to reach the mainland. Narvaez's men, who had been promised easy treasure, were also keen to leave the city. So the Spanish secretly constructed a portable bridge throughout the night, but it malfunctioned during their escape, and so they had to use wooden beams. But they were spotted by the Mexica, and the Mexica warriors descended on them, destroying their bridge and killing most of their horses. This event is known as La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sorrows in English. Around two-thirds of the Spanish were killed in the escape, and most of them would die from injuries caused by arrows, blades, and clubs used by the warriors. Hundreds of them were also taken prisoner and killed by the Mexicas. The remaining Spanish and the attempted to retreat back to Thlaxcala, but along the way they were met with fierce resistance from the Triple Alliance at Otumba, a city-state known for craft production and exchange. The fleeing Spanish and Tlaxcalteca were outnumbered, and yet they managed to defeat the army of the Triple Alliance and kill the general with the few remaining horses they had on an open battlefield. And so the Spanish and Tlaxcalteca were able to retreat to Thlaxcala where they would regroup and prepare to mount another attack on Tenochtitlan. Now, to conclude with an interesting side note, archaeological excavations have found the remains of a Spanish caravan, which was sent by Cortes after defeating Narvaez. But it was intercepted and captured by the Alcolwa, who encountered the caravan after finding out that their king had been murdered by the Spanish in Tenochtitlan. Archaeologists have uncovered items such as European pottery and oven terracotta figurines in the Aztec style that depict Europeans, as well as the remains of the Spanish, which showed that they had been sacrificed and tortured ruthlessly over six months. The bones had been carved into trophies, and their hearts ripped out. The town where they were taken to was named Tecoaque by Cortes, meaning people-eaters, before he sent a revenge mission to wipe out the entire town. And here I end today's episode. Thank you for listening and do check out my blog at hocpodcast.wordpress.com for some maps and images if you're interested. See you soon for part three of the Essex spanish War.